One of the hardest tasks of a leader, from prime ministers to parents, is conflict resolution. Yet it's also the most vital. Where there's leadership, there's long-term cohesiveness within the group, whatever the short-term problems. But where there's a lack of leadership, where leaders lack authority or grace or generosity of spirit, or the ability to respect positions other than their own, then there's divisiveness, rancor, backbiting, resentment, internal politics and a lack of trust. Leaders are people who put the interests of the group above those of any subsection. They care for and inspire others to care for the common good. Which is why an episode in this week's parsha is of great consequence. It arose like this. The Israelites were on the last stage of their journey to the Promised Land. They were now situated on the east bank of the Jordan within sight of their destination. Two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, who had large herds and flocks of cattle, felt that the land they were currently on was ideal for their purposes. It was good grazing country, so they approached Moses and asked for permission to stay there rather than take up their share in the land of Israel. They said, If we found favour in your eyes, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Don't make us cross the Jordan. Moses was instantly alert to the danger. The two tribes were putting their own interests above those of the nation as a whole. They'd be seen as abandoning the nation at the very time they were needed most. There was war, in fact, a series of wars to be fought if the Israelites were to inherit the land. As Moses put it to the tribes, should your fellow Israelites go to war while you sit here, why do you discourage the Israelites from crossing over into the land the Lord has given them? The proposal was potentially disastrous. Moses reminded the men of Reuven and Gad what had happened in the incident of the spies. The spies demoralized the people, ten of them saying that they couldn't conquer the land, the inhabitants were too strong, the cities were impregnable, and the result of that one moment of demoralization was to condemn an entire generation to die in the wilderness and delay the eventual conquest by 40 years. So Moses was blunt, honest, and confrontational with the tribes. What then followed is a role model in negotiation and conflict resolution. The Reubenites and Gadites recognized the claim of the people as a whole and the justice of Moses' concerns, so they proposed a compromise. They said, let's make provision for our cattle and our families, and the men will then accompany the other tribes across the Jordan. They'll fight alongside them. They'll even go ahead of them. They won't return to their cattle and families until all the battles have been fought. The land has been conquered, and the other tribes have received their inheritance. Essentially, they invoke what would later be known as the principle of Jewish law that says, meaning, an act is permissible if one side gains and the other side doesn't lose. We will gain, say the two tribes, by having land good for our cattle, but the nation as a whole won't lose because we'll be the army, we will be in the front line, and we'll stay there until the war has been won. Moses recognizes the fact that they have met his objections. He restates their position to make sure he and they have understood the proposal and they're ready to stand by it. He extracts from them agreement to a tenai kaful, a double condition, both positive and negative. If we do this, 
These will be the consequences, but if we fail to do this, those will be the consequences. He leaves them no escape from their commitment. The two tribes agree, conflict has been averted, the Reubenites and Gadites achieve what they want, but the interests of the other tribes and of the nation as a whole have been secured. It was, in short, a model negotiation. Quite how justified were Moses' concerns became apparent many years later. The Reubenites and Gadites did indeed fulfill their promise in the days of Joshua. The rest of the tribes conquered and settled Israel while they, together with half the tribe of Manasseh, established their presence in Transjordan. Despite this, within a brief space of time, there was almost civil war. Joshua 22 describes how returning to their families and settling their land, the Reubenites and Gadites built an altar to the Lord on the east side of the Jordan. Seeing this as an act of secession, the rest of the Israelites prepared to do battle against them. Joshua, in a striking act of diplomacy, sent Pinchas, the former zealot, now man of peace, to negotiate. He warned them of the terrible consequences of what they'd done by, in effect, creating a religious center outside the land of Israel. It would split the nation in two. The Reubenites and Gadites made it clear that this was not their intention at all. To the contrary, they themselves were worried that in the future the rest of the Israelites would see them living across the Jordan and conclude that they no longer wanted to be part of the nation. That is why they had built an altar, not to offer sacrifices, not as a rival to the nation's sanctuary, but merely as a symbol and sign to future generations that they too were Israelites. Pinchas and the rest of the delegation were satisfied with this answer, and once again civil war was averted. The negotiation between Moses and the two tribes in our Parsha follows closely the principles arrived at by the Harvard Negotiating Project set out by Robert Fisher and William Urey in their classic text, Getting to Yes. Essentially, they came to the conclusion that a successful negotiation must involve four processes. Number one, separate the people from the problem. There are all sorts of personal tensions in any negotiation. It's essential that these be cleared away first so that the problem can be addressed objectively. Second, focus on interests, not positions. It's very easy for any conflict to turn into a zero-sum game. If I win, you lose. If you win, I lose. That's what happens when you focus on positions. And then the question becomes, who wins? By focusing not on positions, but on interests, the question becomes, is there a way of achieving what each of us wants? And then negotiation becomes much simpler. Number three, invent options for mutual gain. This is the halachic idea of zenehene Both sides benefit. It comes about because two sides usually have different objectives, neither of which excludes the other. And four, insist on objective criteria. Make sure that both sides agree in advance to the use of objective, impartial criteria to judge whether what has been agreed has been achieved. Otherwise, Despite all apparent agreement, the dispute will continue because both will say the other side didn't do what they promised. Moses does all four. First, he separates the people from the problem by making it clear to the Reubenites and Gadites that the issue has nothing to do with 
who they are, and everything to do with the Israelites' experience in the past, especially the story of the spies. So he separates it out from the particular details that they are from the tribes of Reuben and Gad. Secondly, he focused on interests, not positions. The two tribes had an interest in the fate of the nation of the hot, as a whole. If they put their personal interests first, God would become angry. So it's striking how different this negotiation was from that of Korach and his followers. There, the whole argument was about position, not about interests, about who was entitled to be a leader. Number three, invent options for mutual gain. That's what the Reubenites and Gadites do. They say, if you will allow us to make temporary provisions for our cattle and children, we will not only fight in the army, we will be its advance guard. So the nation as a whole will gain, and so will we. Finally, there was an agreement on objective criteria. The Reubenites and the Gadites would not return to the east bank of the Jordan until all the other tribes were safely settled in their territories. And that is, in fact, what happens if you look at Joshua chapter 22. This was, in short, a model negotiation, a sign of hope after the many destructive conflicts in the book of Bermidbar, as well as a standing alternative to the many later conflicts in Jewish history that had such appalling outcomes. Note that Moses succeeds not because he is weak, not because he is willing to compromise on the integrity of the nation as a whole, not because he used honey, uses honeyed words or diplomatic evasions, but because he is honest, principled, and focused on the common good. We all face conflicts in our lives, and this is how to resolve them.